think about community strategy, it's something that you don't build, it's something that you do. Show up, have a genuine interest in helping the community move forward, have a genuine desire to help your customers succeed, contribute, contribute in ways that you don't expect to return from, and make lots of friends. What's up, what it do, marketing people? Today on the show, we got David Vogelpohl. He is the CMO at Fast Spring. We talk about what he's learned. He's sitting in the CMO spot for one year, some of the lessons that he's taken to heart and that he shares with us. This is really good if you are a VP and you're looking at making the jump to the CMO role, or if you're in a CMO role and maybe you're just looking for some other perspectives and experiences, David's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to that. So you'll enjoy it. And Before we get into that, though, the show today is brought to you by Cave. We are a marketing agency based out of LA that helps companies with their social media, both on the performance creative side, ad management, and organic strategy and content. If you need some help with social, go over to cavesocial.com, hit that contact us, book a consultation. We'd be glad to chat. All right, y'all. Now let's sit back, relax, enjoy the episode. Hey, David, welcome to the show. Great shirt. I want to say that from the <laughs> from the outset. Thanks, Jordan. Really glad to be here. And I really do like your choice in t-shirts. So. And for those listening but not watching, we're both in black t-shirts. Uh, that's what we showed up to today. So uh, if you're on YouTube, you see it. But uh, the audio experience, I mean, you know what a black t-shirt looks like. So you can uh, envision us like so. David, today's an interesting day. It's a year since you got into the CMO role at FastSpring. I'm sure there's been a lot of learnings. I saw a post that you had some today. I'd love to just go through, I guess, one, how's, how'd the year go, first of all? And then two, we can hop into some of those specific learnings that you have. Sure. So the year went really quickly is the way I would describe it. As I realized my one year was coming up, I was like, that is impossible. I feel like I've been here for one quarter, but it's a year today as of the day of the recording. And it's been such an adventure. Like I haven't switched jobs very often in my career. So this idea of stopping and restarting and relearning a whole new thing is not super familiar to me. So that was a great adventure to unpack all the new information and learn about new puzzles and think about solving them. But the first year has been a wild ride, but uh, it's been great, actually. So what about the learnings? Are you curious about, Jordan? I noticed a a lot through the learnings and you really touched on a lot of like basically avoid good, go for great, which the the book, Good to Great, I think, you know, you can see kind of it shining through. And I agree with that. And I I saw you said, you know, you don't have time for good ideas. You have to make time for great ideas or I'm paraphrasing it a bit, but I wanted to know how, right? How do leaders, CMOs, founders, how do you parse through the ideas to go, this one has legs and, you know, this one doesn't? Yeah, I'm just interested kind of like if somebody on your team comes with an idea, how do you test it for viability? Well, I'm a, a science fan, not a scientist, but as a science fan, I like to see models and I like to see proof. And I think a lot of executives think in that way. And so we think, okay, someone has an idea, it's going to take a lot of time or a material amount of time. Will it have the same level of return that we expect another idea to have? 
I think a lot of folks will stack rank their ideas based on which one they think will have the biggest output. But sometimes a little amount of effort and a medium amount of output can be a better investment. And so I do like to think about what is the potential financial return from the activity. So we got an opportunity to sponsor something recently and we did the math on what the potential output could be. It didn't look like it was ultimately worth the time, even though it would have been ROI positive. And so you're trying to make these decisions about what to trade off on. Sometimes, though, it's difficult to model or impossible to model. And this is one of the lessons I've learned is that you can't grow it unless you track it. But there's a lot of important things that need to happen that can't be tracked in order for you to be successful. So that's a little bit about how I think about the decision making process. But I'm first and foremost trying to model it. Then I'm trying to think and use experience and instinct to say like, well, what are the untrackable things that are going to be most important? And then, of course, in a great effect, trying to listen to the team, listen to customers, listen to the company to help inform those more intangible decisions. Is that helpful, Jordan? Yeah, I like that. I like this. A couple of things too. I like the idea of taking an idea going, all right, let's weigh the downside risk financially from a motivation standpoint, however you want to measure that against potential upside. And then also not only potential financial upside, but a team morale upside, right? Because when we look at orgs, some projects in marketing are definitively more fun to work on than others. And they might not always be the most effective, but some of the ones like you're saying where, hey, if I can get a win and it's a little bit of effort, but it has the potential to give me disproportionate results, then okay, maybe it's only, it's a five to one, not a 5,000 to one. And I can take that win and put it in my pocket or hit that single for a baseball term instead of everything having to be a home run, right? So I really like that idea and something I think more teams can and, and definitely should implement. Another thing you said that I was, I found interesting was about effective board meetings. And a lot of people here listening to this show, they're sitting in those boardrooms and they're the CMO in those boardrooms. And I believe that unless marketing comes prepared, it's easy for us to be seen as the arts and crafts department by CEO and COO and have our budgets cut and have things if we're, if we're not prepared and coming in and attaching ourselves to revenue, showing how we drive pipeline, et cetera. So I want to know, one, has there been anything that you've seen that's made a great board meeting and it's something that's actually had takeaways, not just you know everybody nodding in approval, like you said in your post? Yeah, I think that one. And then two... I guess just talk to me about your experience in the CMO seat in that boardroom and what those dynamics have been like. Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, if you're a marketing leader and your CEO or board doesn't view your activities connected to revenue, then you should work really hard on uh, changing that perception and changing how you execute within your business. I think what I found working with the Fast Spring board, but also boards of companies I worked for in the past where I was involved with producing material for them is, you know, fundamentally, they're there to provide guidance, to provide critiques that help shape your strategy. And when you walk in there with a marketing plan, what you're really aiming to do is you're going to say, we're going to go to market in these certain ways, and we predict that it will have this kind of outcome. In the post you're referencing, I also talk about the fact that the only thing that you can be sure of with your financial plan is that it will be inaccurate. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to use research, 
instinct data to predict what you think will happen. And what I found most common, at least in the exercises I've worked in, is when you're trying to hit a financial goal, you're usually spreading your bets around at a few different areas and effectively trying to structure your forecasts where they overachieve what your ultimate goal is. Um, and it also depends on whether you're building like a bottoms up or tops down plan. But that's how I attach marketing's activities to revenue. As I say, the things we're going to do will help grow the business by X. And I found that boards have been very receptive to that. Is that in the line of what you were thinking of there, Jordan? Yeah, no, I think it's good. I think that exactly is for somebody who is maybe put into the CMO spot and maybe they were more on the brand side or creative side but when they got there and in the, the data and the pipeline side of things is maybe a little bit more fresh or they haven't done as much of it. I'm always like, okay, make sure you're in alignment with the executive team. And my thing I always tell people too, I'm like, if your CEO or founder doesn't believe in marketing, quote unquote, which I've heard and seen, then it might be worth putting your effort into finding a new gig opposed to trying to win them over as well. So it's always like that battle, I think that we have to go through too. So and I think if you were in that battle, and I don't maybe you go get a new job, I guess, but the, the way you crack it, in my view, is you identify what the strategic opportunities are within the company. And then you align your marketing plans and forecasts to support those initiatives. And a good board, a good CEO, a good organization writ large will see the contribution. And again, you're kind of forecasting the contribution there uh, that those efforts have. And then hopefully that mentality, which will shift. I've had the fortune of not working in an org like that ever. So that's all foreign to me. But if you're in that spot, you should definitely work to get out of it. Now, you were the VP of growth at WP Engine. Great company. Shout out to them. No, we use them for a lot. So shout out to them. But talk to me about, I guess, the differences you've experienced going from the VP of growth title to the CMO title. What differences and what crossovers have there been, you know, from a management side of things? Yeah, it's a good question. In my career, in terms of executive titles, I've been head of an organization that was, you know, privately owned by a small group of people and effectively had no material board meetings. I worked for WP Engine and ultimately as VP of growth which did have a board and uh, did have more institutional investors, if you will, and then Fastbring, which has a similar posture. And so as VP of an org that had board meetings with institutional investors, the process for me there was really in a supporting role. So it would work with the operating team at the investors in order to help craft new strategies and directions for the company. What new products might we offer? What new markets might we get into? And so very kind of hands-on strategic work, but not necessarily like at the board meeting, like, quote, a seat at the table. So it had a lot of interactions like that and was familiar with a lot of the motions of forecasting, coming up with marketing strategies that support the larger plan. And so I felt there was a lot of uh, opportunity to learn in that role. And I think most VPs in orgs will have those kind of opportunities to interact with the board, to participate in producing material for the board meetings. And so I think if you're a VP or even a director, that might be something to ask your boss about if there's some career development opportunities there. But it was great training for when I eventually had that seat at the table and sat down with the Fast Spring Board. And so I was able to draw on a lot of those skills, but there was a lot to learn along the way too. But that's a little bit 
of how I think of the difference relative to like the board meeting. But I think relative to the role itself, I think one of the things that really came back to life for me after roles in the past at the C-level was really just how the buck stops with you on a lot of things. There's no insulation to say, oh, I need to go check with you know this C-level person or say things like this C-level person said we should do Y or something like that. Those are convenient management escape hatches. Um, that aren't quite as available when you're in a C-level role. So th- that one was a, a relearning exercise for me, but really stood out. Yeah, the uh, extreme ownership side of of leadership, right? Of like, it's everything in the org or the marketing arm now may not be your fault or work, but will be your responsibility. And having to kind of take that on the emotional side of that of like, oh yeah, right. Okay. This is like you said, there's no passing things up the chain and stuff when you're making, you got to press the red button on if the campaign's going to go live or not and live to, you know, back up those numbers or back up the actions, et cetera. So I like that. You have been in the game for 25 years. So you've seen the dot coms, you've seen the app booms, you've seen Silicon Valley light money on fire more than once. Do you ever look back and go like, man, I was working on like dot coms and pushing like, like just seeing how it's changed so much, you know, from that first year or second year that you were in digital. What are some of those things that you call back to where you're like looking at it like this is the cassette tape, you know, of that time? Um, Have there been any things that jump to mind? Oh, so many things. You know, I remember the earliest job I had in digital was for a regional ISP and co-location provider. And I use air quotes for co-location provider because we had racks in an office building and no dedicated HVAC, which if you know anything about data centers is like completely insane. We had oscillating fans blowing at the servers. I had to drive up there to reboot the servers. (laughs) We didn't have remote ways to reboot them. And so I have a lot of memories like that. But I think, you know, in 25 years, I haven't really counted it recently. But, you know, as I think back over all that time, I mean, there have been like massive changes, like you pointed out, dot com, the rise of mobile and, and all these other aspects of digital. But the fundamental principles have pretty much remained the same. There are platforms with audiences that you can speak to. You can say things to that audience and test different ways of talking to that audience to see what will yield the best results. That and then that formula for digital marketing has not changed. It's the exact same as it's always been. I think as we think I was joining digital right at the shift from more traditional media to digital advertising. But that core benefit of instantly testing a new message, instantly seeing if it works, um, is an incredibly powerful part of digital. And as technology and advertising and strategies have evolved over time, they're just variants of that core formula. And so it's always been relatively comfortable for me to adopt something new because it's just a new variant of the same thing we've been doing for 25 plus years in digital. So that's my take on it. Uh, I don't know about you, Jordan. I'm sure you've seen some things change over time too. Yeah, it's interesting. It's I, I think it's your spot on with if you can take the philosophy and the principles and then you can just apply them. You can learn the idiosyncrasies and of every app or platform or or find somebody who can do that, but understanding how that actually helps the overall business objective and moves the business forward, I think has probably been my biggest learning in marketing is like some things are fun and they show a lot of uh there's like what I call diet impressions, for instance. 
you can get a lot of impressions on campaigns that I don't think foster a deep connection between brand or any connection between brand and customer. But then we can dance around and be like, look at, you know, things that we got and these impressions. And I'm like, okay, that would be example of a through line for me where it's like, does that actually move the business forward? Does that help us hit our goals? And that's been something that, I mean, I'm 35, so not not new, not uh, not veteran status in the game yet, just kind of in the thick of it. But I think that that's something, at least for me, that's been a through line through to be like, what's actually noise and what's a signal when it comes to the business? Well, this is actually really interesting to me personally, because again, I joined right at the shift between traditional media and digital media. And uh, there's the show Mad Men, and there's a great line from it. And they said, uh, you know, to Don Draper, they're like, you know, why does advertising works and work? And he goes, I don't know, it just works. And you have this trackability issue with traditional advertising. You're talking like TV ads, print, radio. You put the ads on and sales go up. You take the ads off and sales go down. We have a hard time often attributing it to exact ads. Like, was it the radio ad that worked or was it the TV ad? Especially if you're running in them at the same time, it can become incredibly difficult to track. And when we have gotten into the social media era after we came out of like paid search and affiliate being the primary mechanisms of online advertising with CPM as well, but really still trying uh, to display, if you will, really still being tied to conversions. But with social media, we've kind of entered this age where like impressions and interactions are being assigned value by those advertising platforms. And it's funny because if you turn off the TV and radio ad sales go down, if you turn off the untrackable social promotions, untrackable paid social, your sales will go down. And so we often see these as like not last click or first click trackable or maybe even full funnel. But when we turn them off, we see an effect. And I think it's such a really interesting full circle effect uh, where the combination of brand awareness and direct response marketing is really the kind of duality in the formula for success. It's funny. Yeah, I agree. I think one of my other like hills I'll die on is that last click attribution is the most overrated thing in, in marketing. I think it's a metric, not the metric. And I feel like performance marketers were like, it's amazing. Look at all these things. And I'm like, there's no... A linear purchase cycle is like a hilarious concept when we look at, just look around this room and be like, I can't tell you what I click to get this thing and, you know, a globe and all of those things. So I agree. I look at things like, you know, marketing efficiency ratio across that, doing holdout tests, all of that I find to be much more telling. But I think it's because we got all this new data for the first time and marketers were like, whoa, we can like track impressions now. We don't have to just guess how many cars are driving by or like just look at some Nielsen TV ratings to understand what who's looking at our ads. We can actually get hardcore numbers. And then we thought, oh, well, then we should be able to track through to conversion. And I think we stripped out a little bit of the, or a lot of bit of the emotional side of purchasing and acknowledging that, like you're saying, is all of these other things, the comments, the engagements and the impressions and seeing how, you know, how that can affect overall sales. Bingo. I say on the uh, the hollow, I'd like to get your, I guess, your thoughts on this. I have two things. One I call like hollow impressions or diet content. And that would be like, if a brand is doing a trend, let's say, I think people remember the trend. So you're not only competing for consumer attention for the brand, but now you're competing against the trend itself. 
So I think people, they're actually triggered to remember whatever the dance is or whatever the, the, the trend is or the meme or whatever. So that's one part of it. I'd love to get your thoughts on just that in general with advertising. What do you think? Could you hum a few more bars on the trend and what you mean by that? Yeah. So let's say there's a meme of Michael Scott from The Office and he's like going thumbs down in one photo and then thumbs up in the next one. And it's like everyone's using it. And, you know, I'm maybe posting it and being like, when my dad cooks that Thanksgiving, thumbs down. But when my mom cooks, thumbs up. And then a brand hops in and goes, you know, when you don't use Salesforce, but when you do use Salesforce type of thing. And that content I think more times than not, people just remember you're competing against Michael Scott and The Office alongside and the trend. Yeah, I think the brand competes along. Yeah, I totally understand. And I think like thinking about a trend that you're participating in as a brand on social media, I think it depends on your brand and what you're trying to achieve. I'm a big fan of having fun, especially with technology businesses. So I think in general, I think it's a great activity to do. I think in terms of competing with the trend, the example you gave, I immediately start asking questions like, well, wait a minute, do you have the rights to use Michael Scott content in your stuff? And so I get a little weird sometimes when people use memes where they haven't researched, can they actually use the image they're using? But in terms of a trend and competing against it, I think one of the lessons I learned as CMO is that culture isn't built, it's lived. And so if you have a trend that's emerging on social media, I think going with the flow and participating in a material but respectful way is the way I would approach that. I'm not as familiar with the way you're phrasing the strategy. So forgive me, Jordan, if I missed that a little bit. Oh, no, it's all good. It's funny too. You did say like the legalities of it, which I recommend everybody go back two or three episodes to the Robert Freund episode. He's an advertising attorney and we got into essentially our, is is this type, should brand even do this? Is it legal to get into it? He did a at length on the legalities of, you know, memes. What do you say? <laughs> Largely, it's not worth it. It's le- the legal risk is not worth it. And unless it's like the stock, yeah, he says it depends, but in everything has a risk. But my takeaway from it at least was things like stock photo memes, probably a little bit less risky than a Barbie meme, which has like big commercial implications of, you know, Mark. Yeah. That's about how I think about it. So that's good to hear. (laughs) Yeah. Now I want to move to, I guess, Fastspring in particular and talk to me a little bit. I guess one, let's lay the foundation. Tell people what Fastspring does. Sure. Fastspring is a payment provider. So we're like a managed payment platform that provides payment processing, subscription management, and also tax compliance. So we file, remit, and pay and deal with all audits for sales and VAT tax around the world. So that's a little bit about what Fastspring does. Cool. So you have this B2B component, but you also have to do the outward marketing. I see you all are on the socials. How are you splitting, you know, or or what tactics or strategies are you doing to drive pipeline? Is it a lot of pipeline? Is it a lot of ABM stuff? Are you doing events? Are you relying on paid social or using it? Where do you all kind of, you know, deploy the marketing troops, so to speak? Uh, Well, the answer to all of those is yes. And the way that we generally approach it, I mean, we leverage paid search, paid social, We'll do direct buys on newsletters. We'll do direct buys on websites. 
We'll do other programmatic type ads through places like Reddit. And so those are some of the places where we'll do digital media buys. We vary our strategy. So like paid search would be more direct response focus and social would obviously be more thought leadership focus. We have had some success with driving direct response leads through social. Um, and I know that can be challenging for a lot of B2B businesses. A lot of times you'll focus on things like ebook downloads or webinar uh, registrations, but there's ways where you can couple those things with like, and I'm also ready to talk to you about X. If you just add that checkbox to some of those forms, even those soft lead elements can generate hardcore leads. So that, those are some of the ways we go about it. Um, events is a big thing for us. Our target customer is an SMB SaaS software or digital product company. So we go to places where software uh, entrepreneurs hang out, SaaS conferences. Um, we have customers in gaming and e-learning. And so we'll go participate in those communities. And so really, if you think about FastSpring and who our target customer is, you know, in the world of businesses, it's digital product companies, right? SaaS software, digital products. And so the key decision makers there can be hard to find. So it's really a community play in a lot of ways. But that's been bread and butter for me coming from WP Engine, where that was a huge part. And so it's been a lot of fun, you know, solving the puzzle since I've been here. But that's a little bit about how we go about our marketing strategy. Is that helpful? Yeah, that's cool. I like when companies do that and you're able to position yourself as an ally to that, you know, developer founder of of those softwares and give them the tools and give them the tools even just outside of, you know, payment processing software and give them tools to help them grow their business in other ways or help manage people in other ways through content, through community, through creating events where they can meet other founders or other people who can, you know, they can bounce ideas off. So I, I like that. I was going to say on community strategy, you know, a lot, a lot of words you were talking about, like position yourself as an ally to them. I, I would position a little differently. As okay. I think about community strategy, it's something that you don't build. It's something that you do. Show up, have a genuine interest in helping the community move forward, have a genuine desire to help your customers succeed, contribute, contribute in ways that you don't expect to return from and make lots of friends. That's a community strategy. And I think a lot of people sit down and like map it out in a spreadsheet. Yeah, you need to do some of that. But like 99% of it is showing up and making friends. And that's the way I like to approach it from the marketing perspective. Oh, yeah, spot on. I think a big thing there too is like treating people like people, not leads in those scenarios and in community. Like you were saying, showing up and kind of giving, they are going to be leads or they are going to help the business growth. But like you said, giving without the expectation of something in return, actually showing up. All of those things are so important because people know when they're in. We all know when we've walked into the the timeshare sales thing. And <laughs> it can take place in, in many different forms. But if you walk in somewhere and you feel like you're trapped and being pitched to for the next like 45 minutes or hour, you're never going to go back to that party. So yeah, finding those environments where it's not like that, I think that's huge. David, thanks for coming on the show today. I appreciate you taking the time. For those who want to learn more about FastSpring, where should they go? And then if they want to connect with you online, where's the best place to link up? Yeah, if you'd like to learn more about FastSpring, you can visit FastSpring.com. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on X. I don't know if I'll get used to saying that, at WP David V. And then you can find me on LinkedIn under David Vogelpohl. I think it's forward slash D Vogelpohl. Beautiful. And I'll put links to uh, all of those in the show notes. David, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jordan. All right, everybody, that's it for this episode. As always, I'm your host, Jordan Shelton, and I will catch you next time. 